Good morning. I'm Charlie Meyerson. Our guest on this edition of Point of View is the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, Jim Squires, who's out with a new book whose critical look at the news business has been, and I don't think this is an understatement, the talk of the journalism profession. The name of the book is Read All About It, The Corporate Takeover of America's Newspapers. More recently, you may recall, Mr. Squires served as media advisor to Ross Perot's presidential campaign. We'll talk uh, more about that later. First of all, welcome uh, back to Chicago. You've written the sort of book that, uh, that I know dozens of journalists would love to be able to write about their bosses or their ex-bosses, as the case may be. Have, uh, have you heard a lot like that from other journalists, other reporters? Well, I, I may have uh, scored a, f a first here in the sense that, that I was able to write about the bosses of journalism. Uh, reporters have never been able to write about their owners uh, in the history of the press. So this is n nothing new that they can't write about them now, but it's the one story that I thought uh, I didn't tell while I was uh, in active uh, in the news business for 29 years. It, it was a business that changed dramatically, and it was a business uh, about which we did not report the change. Now, you joined the Tribune in... 1972. And left in 89. Left so in 89. You, were there, you were there during a lot of changes at the Tribune. You, uh, you have a lot to say about the Tribune, the Tribune Corporation, very little of it, to my perception, nice about the, you know, the highest of authorities at the Tribune. Um, explain for our listeners. Well, it, it, the Tribune is, uh, it, the book uh, is really not about the Tribune or about Tribune Company. It is about the changes that affected the newspaper industry, the institution of the free press in the last quarter of a century. Because I saw uh, a lot of those changes from a perch within Tribune Company and, and 13 years as editor of their newspapers, uh, then you get a lot of Tribune Company in there. And m many of the, the examples and illustrations of the changes, sure. obviously I had to write about what I saw f firsthand. But the book was never intended to be about Tribune or about Tribune Company. And in fact... The, the the real message of the book, which is uh, uh, an alarm being raised about what's happening to the free press, is an alarm that when it put in the perspective of Tribune Company or the Chicago Tribune or its newspapers, is really an alarm about what's going to happen in the future if we don't change things. You see, there are, all newspapers are not alike. There are classes of newspapers, and they all have different missions now. And the big newspapers, like the Chicago Tribune, and the New York Times and the Washington Post are extraordinary in the sense that they still devote a tremendous amount of their resources to, the, to covering news, and they still exercise the best journalism judgment that's being exercised anywhere uh, in the free press. But th there are literally hundreds of other newspapers around the country where that is not true anymore. And it hasn't been true for a number of years. And so newspapers like the Tribune are really uh, the last bastion of journalism, in my opinion. Yeah, one of the central arguments in your book, it seems to me, is, is that there is a fundamental conflict between the, the increasingly common concept of corporate ownership of newspapers and the concept of serving the public good, uh, enhancing the public's right to know. Can, can those two, in your opinion, uh, peacefully and fruitfully coexist? Well, I'm, I have questions about that. I mean, that is really the, the, the nature of the conflict, is the shift from the private ownership, 
which which when it dominated the press, which it did for uh, for most of the life of the free press in America, uh, that private ownership was diverse, and in that diversity, I think, was the strength of the press, the independence of the press, and the f the future of the press. It was as diverse as its individual owners. That's were. right, and anything that's that diverse and is that flexible and that different from one community to the other or from one side of the street to the other is very difficult to ever control. It's very difficult to, to combat. It's much more likely to remain free. What happened, and I think the most significant development in the 25 years that I watched the, the changes in the press, is, is that the, the press lost that freedom and for the first time in its history now labors under a single compulsion. You know, the government has never been able to compel the press. Mm -hmm. We don't censor uh, uh, the First Amendment rights in this country. And generally speaking, the, the, the history of the press has been one of, of freedom to even be excessive and unethical and a lot of other bad things. I mean, it was the ultimate kind of free press. Now the press, I think, all across it, in every facet, is it now labors under a compulsion that it never had. And that's basically the compulsion to behave like every other business and to constantly uh, worry first about return to the stockholders. It is almost a reversal uh, of the value system that the press had for most of its history. This is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. I'm Charlie Myerson. We're talking to the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, Jim Squires, whose new book is Read All About It, The Corporate Takeover of America's Newspapers. There have been, well, in, in, in recent uh, journalism history in particular, some, some other models that uh, I want to I get your take on it. Ms. Magazine recently has gone from a commercial for-profit publication to a not-for-profit pretty much subscriber-supported uh, publication. Is that a model that, that might be worth pursuing for modern newspapers? Well, over the, over the years, you have had a shift uh, away from uh, circulation revenue being the main support of the free press to advertising revenue being the main support of the free press. And during that time, what has accompanied that is, is basically a shift in the approach to content. For many years, journalism, the press, the newspapers, the very good broadcast segments of the free press, such as the old NBC News, uh, TV News, and CBS News mm -hmm. operations, uh, really got up every day to commit journalism. Their, their primary purpose was to try to find out what's going on in the world and tell you as much about it as they possibly can. Uh, as we shifted to a, an advertising lineage-driven business, which it is today, which it almost, is today, almost without fairly, fear. and it's really a, 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 a situation in which the press is in competition with the entertainment media for these advertising dollars. In and competition with, and sometimes controlled by. Controlled by. Well, they're they're we're, they're actually losing the, the the distinction between the two, and that's the real concern to me. But as we have moved toward that kind of, of a business. The culture of the press has changed from the idea that you get up every day to commit journalism to the idea that you get up every day to commit entertaining, interesting journalism that will attract and hold an audience. And that takes the risk out of journalism in many instances. If the goal is simply to please your uh, customers, to attract and hold an audience, then you really have no different culture 
than the entertainment industry. And that is a dramatic departure from history and tradition. That's, I mean, you've certainly touched on a, a, a point of debate that, uh, that has surfaced in every newsroom I've ever worked in, and you know, that's the continuing struggle f for journalists. When is it our responsibility, when is it our job to, to report what we think people want to hear, stories they're interested in, and when do we ignore that siren call, you might call it, and, and concentrate on what we think people should hear, whether they want to or not. Well, that's right. See, if you, if you, if you direct, uh, if you commit journalism, which is to do the best you can to find out exactly how it is and tell people that, whether they like it or not, whether it attracts them or not, whether it pleases advertisers or not, you are, in, in fact, living up to the true definition of journalism. Journalism, by, it, by its very nature, can be entertaining and can be interesting, depending on the stories and the quality and the writers and the reporters and the photographers and, and simply the, the competence of the organization. But the minute you begin to design journalism or engineer it toward an audience, toward a specific audience, with an effort to attract greater advertising profitability, then it ceases to be journalism at all. So you shift from an, a traditional obligation to educate and inform the public so they are, so the public is better able to make a rational democratic decision to entertaining the public, which is quite a different matter. You, you offer another sort of example in your book, but a uh, continuing point of contention at places where I've worked is how do you deal, for instance, with capital punishment. I mean, one school of thought is when capital punishment is committed in this country, it should be reported in all its gruesome detail. That is, is a school of thought that seems increasingly to be set aside by, by journalists. You talk about a photograph, I think, from uh, was it the Iran-Iraq uh, the, war? Uh, the, uh, certainly. The, the example that, that is most glaring and disturbing to me was the, the press coverage of the Gulf the War. The Persian Gulf War. The Gulf War uh, was the the most covered story in history, as best I can determine. It had more reporters, more equipment, more space, and more time devoted to it, in proportion to to hours and days that it was uh, going on than any other story in history. This press that covered the war is the most educated press, the best equipped press. The, and in many cases, the most ethical press ever sent to cover any story. Yet, the result of that is was a country that was in the dark about what the war was really about. You didn't see death, and war is death. It was portrayed through this new entertainment news infotainment information apparatus that we now have. Uh, almost as, as some kind of a video game in which you drop these bombs down uh, wind tunnels and, and into wind shafts, and everyone cheers you for doing that. The, the real ugliness and true nature of war never reached the American people. And, and even more disturbing to me was that uh, this was government censorship uh, of, of, at a level I have not been able to find in, in the history of the American free press. Was it, was it cowardice by the media? Oh, was no. it? I mean, it was it truly just a, uh, an oppressive stance by the government that, well, that it, kept it, it that it way? Well, it was the a, a manifestation of the government's new ability to censor and manipulate this press. The diversity of the press in the past and the relationship between the press and the government was such that the press was impossible 
to, to control. In this instance, while we've always had censorship during the time of war, we always had a, a distinctive press that was counted on to be responsible. In other words, we'll let you know and see what's going on, and it is your responsibility as an important institution in this country to, one, inform the public, but at the same time not in, not uh, uh, screw up the war. I mean, don't, don't betray our secrets, don't get people mm -hmm. killed. The, the ability of the press to distinguish itself now from the rest of the entertainment world is lost. And, and therefore, the government is now in a position to say, look at the excesses that you're going to have here if we don't control the flow of information, if we don't control the movement of cameras, of anchor uh, persons, of uh, on-the-scene reporters. Certainly, the journalists themselves are, are capable of reporting it and brave enough to report it. But the development of their business to this, but mainly due to technology and to the the, necessi the ability to do instant uh, uh, transmission of information, uh, has given the government th the right or the opportunity to impose uh, unprecedented censorship. And what's more disturbing is that after they had done it, they with the, polled the American people, and the American people said, terrific government. You kept that press where they should be. In fact, you should do more of this. Now, that suggests to me that even though we have more reporters, more sources of information, better technology, we have the least informed public in the history of the country. This is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. I'm Charlie Myerson. Our guest this morning is the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, Jim Squires. His new book is Read All About It, The Corporate Takeover of America's Newspapers. Uh, you've been gone from Chicago for the most part for the last three years. What's your perception of the town and the status of its uh, never-ending newspaper wars since you left the Tribune Sun-Times? Well, uh, what had happened in the newspaper war uh, when I left was that, that the Tribune had finally uh, attained uh, dominance in the market. It had been struggling for dominance in for, for decades. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that situation has changed. If anything, the Tribune has enhanced its position as the main carrier of print advertising, and as a result of that, certainly has always had uh, uh, more resources devoted to covering news than anyone else in, in the last uh, decade and a half. And I don't think that situation has changed. I, I would imagine that the economic uh, turndown, which hit the newspapers here, hits uh, hit the Sun-Times and other papers in the market harder than it did the Tribune. So they are in a more precarious uh, financial situation now than they have been. Can the Sun-Times survive? Well, I, I, I really don't know. As you know, there is a, 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 the Sun-Times is, is discussed in Read All About It as a very uh, uh, good illustration of what happens in papers to papers who are the second and third papers in markets. You see, it has been very difficult uh, to make money uh, delivering the news unless you were in a monopoly situation. So anywhere there is not a monopoly situation, the, the, the competition uh, takes its toll on the second and third papers. And, and the only way the Sun-Times survived was to be sold in a leverage buyout kind of deal that indentured it in much the same way that being publicly owned indentured the Tribune, in the sense that you have this obligation to produce uh, more cash flow every quarter in order to either 
to, to return uh, better investment to stockholders, in the case of the Tribune, or to pay debt service, in the case of the Sun-Times. So the Sun-Times uh, spends all of its waking hours trying to earn enough money uh, to pay its debt service and therefore is unable to invest in plant, unable to expand its staff, and is, is a crippled newspaper as a result. It's, it's really just a small part of your book, but it's uh, certainly gotten a lot of press. Uh, I want to talk about the relationship between someone who presumably would, would be one of the crowns in the, the Tribune newspaper empire, Mike Royko, and his relationship or lack of relationship with the, the corporate powers that be at the Tribune company. What, what's the story? Well, um, Royko is, uh, is uh, the best columnist in America, and as a result of that has uh, on any newspaper a position of independence and authority that other journalists do not enjoy. And as a result of that, uh, it, it is, he is not the least bit reluctant to, to exercise that, f that freedom of speech in his columns and frequently uh, in, in, in his personal relationships with, with people. I mean, he is, as I have often been accused of being, sometimes a surly and confrontational uh, personality. No. <laughs> and I, in, in, in Mike's case, uh, the, the only reason to even uh, mention that, and the reason it is included in the in the uh, uh, book, is that it is typical of the kind of uneasiness that the professional managers of journalism today have with the traditional journalists. I mean, the the to me, Mike Royko embodies the the greatest traditions of the free press in America. I mean, his attitude, his skepticism, his irreverence, his uh, willingness to take a risk and say what he thinks and to go after the tough story. That makes professional managers very uncomfortable. It did not make the old journalists proprietors uncomfortable. No. The old owners of American journalism would have loved everything about Royko and felt very comfortable with him no matter what he did. The new era of journalism management uh, is it find, looks at Royko as they would a, a star second baseman, someone you can buy and display and get uh, help your return as a result of. But they, if there was unwillingness in one case to re reward him or at least offer him some, some prime tickets uh, for a Cubs game. Well, in, in, that, in that particular incident, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that Mike Rook didn't want to go to the <laughs> Cubs game and sit in the box with all the, all the owners and the Blue Bloods. But, but the, the idea that you can possess him as a, a, a asset to your corporation and exploit his talent and use it to earn money and at the same time not want to be around them, to me, uh, illustrates this gulf that exists between journalism and the free press and the people who now own it and run it. This is Point of View, WNUA 95.5. Our guest is Jim Squires, the former editor of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, during your years at the helm of the Tribune newspaper, what, what are you most proud of? Well, I think the direction of the Tribune's editorial resources. How did we use the resources of the Tribune? The, the stories that, that I am most proud of that we did in a decade were the stories about the underclass, which now the rest of the world is uh, only acknowledging. I mean, we, we wrote and warned about in 1984 and 85 what ultimately came to play out in uh, South uh, Central Los Angeles uh, last year. Uh, uh, the effort to reform education 
uh, which, which the Tribune was very interested in and vocal about in the mid-80s, is now uh, the, the number one or number two national priority. Uh, we uh, had a marvelous uh, a uh, series on child abuse, which later became, uh, we were very early to these stories. And that's what journalism ought to do. It ought to warn uh, the country about things that are happening. And so stories like uh, the American Millstone series, the Education Reform series, the series on uh, street gangs, uh, the story on AIDS research uh, that is now again proven to be a, a, a quite a, a marvelous piece of reporting. And, uh, th those are the what that's what journalism ought to do, and it's not often very popular. I mean, I, I didn't get any uh, uh, accolades or they didn't pin any ribbons on me in Chicago for running those stories. We got some Pulitzer prizes during. That's there. right, but uh, the Pulitzer prizes weren't very important to the yeah, to the yeah. new professional managers. There's a good quote you begin your book with from Walter Lippmann describing uh, journalism as uh, the beam of a searchlight that moves restlessly about, bringing one episode and then another out of the darkness uh, into vision, rather than as as you describe in your book, sometimes the uh, press following public opinion to deliver stories about well, Princess Di and uh, Prince well, Charles I, and all the rest of it. I think that, that that is the most obvious result of this change, uh, in that, that the press as an institution appears to have lost its independence and its ability to decide what is news. We now let other people decide what is news for us, not only the business managers who have their idea of what news is, but also the the rest of the information world, uh, uh, entertainment, television, for example. If, if for many many years, if if the mainstream institution of the free press, as represented by the paragons of, uh, of modern journalism, the great newspapers, decided that something wasn't a story, it didn't become one. And, and that in itself was, was a reason to criticize the press. They're keeping news from us. They are making judgments for us. What they are really doing is, is letting you see the world through a prism of judgment, of journalism, of professional judgment as to what is important. The absence of that has brought us a distorted view of reality in the sense that Joey Budafuco and Amy Fisher Everywhere. get five times as much yeah. coverage as they ought to get. The entertaining aspects of, of politics get far more play and far more coverage and have far more impact on the outcome of elections than much more important aspects of political coverage. And that seems to me to be a distortion of journalism purpose and results in a less informed, less rational electorate. Amen. This is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. I'm Charlie Myers, and our guest is the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, Jim Squires, whom, whom you may recognize uh, more recently as, uh, let's see, what was your formal title? It was the, uh, the me media advisor? Was that it to well, Ross Perot? Well, that's as close as we need yeah. to get. I don't know what I, I want to hear just, we're running out of time, but very briefly, I mean, was that, a, was that a good experience? You two parted ways before his campaign came to a, a fruition. Uh, actually, uh, uh, he, he wiped out the official campaign staff, yeah. but I stayed uh, employed by Ross Perot through the election he did. and remain uh, in contact with him today. I never had any disagreements with Ross Perot other than his unwillingness to take my magnificent political <laughs> advice from time to time. What? But I, came, I thought it was a very positive experience for me personally and a very positive experience for the country.
Do you two have a continuing relationship? We do. We do. I, I talked to him yesterday. So what's fact, what's uh, going to become of him? Week. Is 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 he going to be a candidate next time around? Uh, I would g- uh, guess that he does not plan to be at this moment and hopes he will not have to be. Uh, I don't think that Ross Perot uh, has that desire to be President of the United States. So I, I, I would guess that he would take any opportunity to not run. What about this, this image he developed over the summer of, of paranoia, someone who just didn't trust his followers, you know, the, the business about the, the efforts to, to break up his daughter's wedding? Was, was that all accurate? Was his account Well, first of, of all, he, he believed what he said, and he came to be Did convinced you? that the Republicans, particularly the Texas Republicans, were trying to, d- to get to him by attacking his family. I believe that they were trying to do that. Uh, as to, wh- to whether I would have reacted to the, that in the same way that Ross did, probably not. I would have taken that more with a grain of salt than he did. So we differed on how you respond to that, but I think that the effort was there, and I didn't detect... Uh, uh, they wanted to, to portray Perot as a paranoid, unpredictable, uh, hair-trigger tempered person. And as a result of that, went out of their way to, to project that image. I did not find him to be that. I think he says what he thinks when he wants to say it. He does uh, uh, have a, a, a thin skin to criticism in a couple of key areas, like attacking his family. He thinks that's terrible. But a lot of what Perot did was designed to make a point. Much of his reaction to attacks and to questions from the press and to almost everything else in the political system were pretty calculated in the sense that they were, they were designed to call attention to things he thought uh, were wrong with the system and need to be reformed. This is point of view. Before we wrap up, uh, I want to give you a chance to, uh, to offer our listeners a, a glimmer of hope. You, for most of your book, paint a, a pretty grim scenario for the, the death of independent, socially committed, muckraking journalism in the old tradition. Is it as bad as all that? Do you, where do you see rays of hope, if any, for the sort of journalism that, that you worked for at the Trib and that you'd like to see flourish? Well, I don't know uh, whether we're going to be able to retain that kind of journalism. Uh, my uh, feeling is that, I mean, the upside uh, of, of all the changes is probably the subject of another book, but, but basically it is that once you have this many sources of information and this easy to come by, I mean, you're going to have channel after channel and everyone's getting information from the, the way they like to get it, you can ultimately have a better democracy as a result. I'm a lot more optimistic about the impact on democracy than I am about uh, the ever us ha- uh, having a return to the kind of journalism that I, th- I thought was uh, really critical to the country. Our guest on this week's edition of Point of View has been the former editor of the Chicago Tribune, Jim Squires. His new book is Read All About It, The Corporate Takeover of America's Newspapers, $20 from Times Books and Recommended Reading for anyone interested in the state of journalism and the newspaper business in particular these days. I'm Charlie Myerson. Thanks for listening.